I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. On this episode of Newt's World, I'm talking with Stephen Miller. He was the senior advisor to President Trump, someone I've known for years since he worked in the U.S. Senate. We chatted back in February and just a great podcast when he first left his role in the White House and he was beginning to think about what came next. He has been a remarkable leader in the conservative movement and has helped create a brand new organization, America First Legal. So before we get to Afghanistan, which is really our topic for today, I want him to just take a minute or two and brief you on America First Legal, which you can learn more about at their website, aflegal.org. Stephen, thank you for coming and doing this. And tell us briefly about your great new project on America First Legal. Thank you so much, Noon. It's a great thrill to be here for my second time. And I'm very humbled by your kind introduction, considering the seminal role that you've played in building the conservative movement as we know it today. When I left the White House on January 20th, 2021, I knew that conservatives needed an answer to the legal machine that the left had built. The vanguard of the left's legal machine is an organization we all know very well, which is the ACLU. But underneath it, there's a constellation of many smaller groups, albeit well-funded, by many of the Democrats' progressive billionaire donors to advance far-left causes in the courtroom. And we saw during the Trump administration over and over again these left-wing groups 
would go to a favorable venue, usually, say, in San Francisco, get a nationwide injunction and a policy that was perfectly lawful would be halted. We need to figure out how to go to court to stop unlawful policies, which in a sane world, of course, would be quite a bit easier. The challenge, though, is that we have never built up this infrastructure. We have many great legal organizations on the right. I don't want to suggest that we don't. But those groups historically have specialized in long-haul legal fights where, you know, it takes five or six years and you go to the Supreme Court and you got a coin toss chance in winning versus the legal warfare that is needed for today's environment where you have to halt the policy in its tracks before it can cause irreversible damage. So I'll note just real quickly as an example, we have successfully frozen two of Biden's equity initiatives that explicitly grant government benefits on the basis of race and explicitly exclude people from receiving those benefits on the basis of race, something that we would have thought would have been unthinkable only a short time ago. We've also been advising state AGs in their successful litigation to this point in time, working hand in glove with some of our best state AGs to sue the Biden administration over their dismantlement of immigration and customs enforcement. And there was recently a favorable district court ruling in that case in Texas, also joined by Louisiana, and we're outside counsel for Louisiana in that case. And so for the time being, that Biden memo has been frozen. Obviously, there'll be appeals. Those are just a few examples of the work that we're doing to stop bad policies now. Because, you know, you win a fight on the merits six years from now after a president's long gone, it's important. But the damage is already done and the republic has already suffered. And so we're changing our legal model to do what the left did, except, again, we're fighting illegal policies instead of legal ones. And people can learn much more about what you're doing by going to aflegal.org. Am I right? Exactly. AFlegal.org. Please go. If you sign up, you will get email alerts with everything that we're doing. So let me now switch gears totally. You were in the White House. You saw the evolution of policy. You were in many of the key meetings. What's your reaction to what you're living through right now with Afghanistan? One almost fails to be able to find the words to describe the extent of the humiliation and the scope of the disaster. You know, I think you probably feel the same way, Newt, and you, like me, you've spent a long time studying how to communicate, how to find the words to fit a moment. And this moment is so extraordinary in the worst, most nightmarish way possible that my vocabulary fails me because it's so beyond the realm of normal human behavior. In other words, when you hear President Biden say that he is going to, in effect, not his words, but this is what it basically amounts to, in effect, let the Taliban dictate the departure date of U.S. troops for the evacuation mission, knowing full well that we will not be able to complete the evacuation in time, it comes across verging on sociopathic. I just don't know what words to use to describe it. It really is like we are living through an alternate reality in which the President of the United States 
does not even comprehend his responsibilities as commander-in-chief. I'm not sure he does, but it's clear that he made a decision to surrender to the Taliban and that he's now riding that out, that whatever the consequences, he's almost angrily determined. I'm struck that he just lies about it. He says that the other members of the G7 are all with him, and they're all out there saying publicly, no, we're not. I've never seen an American president this much out of touch with reality. I agree. It's quite terrifying. And, you know, the president had an out, if he wanted one, to easily, easily, without anyone criticizing or complaining, extend the troop evacuation well beyond August 31st, or extend the evacuation mission and leave our troops in well beyond August 31st, on the simple grounds that the August 31st deadline that he'd originally set was not an evacuation mission, but an end of the military mission, an end of the nation-building mission. Not only a single American believed that when he sent some 6,000 troops back to Afghanistan to conduct an evacuation, that that was time-limited. The only reason why, as best I can tell, that they are cutting it off on August 31st is because the Taliban has drawn a red line. So we're now in the remarkable position of being dictated to by the Taliban about our own national security and the evacuation of our own citizens. Nations have few responsibilities that are more sacred or fundamental than the protection of their own citizens, whether they're at home or abroad. And so to abandon that in deference to the Taliban underscores, one, what an unconscionably horrendous withdrawal Biden executed in the first place the Taliban ever was given that much leverage by creating this hostage situation. And secondly, it underscores Biden's complete and total weakness as a leader, that he's unwilling to turn the tables on the Taliban to regain operational control. My sense has been that he literally, in his own mind, surrendered. That they're now dominant, they're the leaders, they get to set the terms, and the most powerful nation on earth is now being dictated to by a 7th century tribal group. This will be written about in military histories for millennia. In other words, this is one of the most stunning, grim milestones any civilization has ever suffered. And this is a really important point. There's a wide divergence of opinions within both conservative circles and within the country at large about the war in Afghanistan, what our mission should have been, how long we should have stayed there, when we should have left. I have my own very strongly held views about all of that. But what everyone needs to understand is that for a great power to be humiliated, debased, degraded in this way, as you mentioned, by a medieval band of radicalized fundamentalists, jeopardizes our security and emboldens our world's adversaries in ways we can scarcely imagine. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Now, one of the left's defenses is that President Trump was going in the same direction and would have had the same outcome. But since you were in the room and since you know the evolution over a four-year period of the Trump approach to this thing, how do you answer that and how do you draw the distinction? Yes, well, I'm glad you asked that question because it really is a scurrilous lie that is being told by a desperate failing administration. So let's take a moment to really set the record straight on this point. So President Trump recognized early on, going back to the campaign, that the nation-building exercise in Afghanistan was not the correct mission. There's certainly a place and a role for the United States in the context of a military occupation to create a sustainable government. But the specific mission of trying to create a Western-style centralized democracy in Afghanistan with a country that hadn't had a history of successful central government and had had a, a recent end of the 20th century marked mostly by tribal civil warfare, President Trump understood that we needed to be focused on our security objectives, degrading the Taliban, strengthening the military capabilities of the U.S.-backed government, and ensuring that the Taliban understood that providing any kind of host or venue for terrorism would ensure their demise. Those were the cornerstones of the Trump strategy. With that in mind, early in the Trump administration, he executed a withering assault on the Taliban, as people remember well. And in 2019, when the Taliban violated some of its commitments, he again dropped huge amounts of ordinances and 
serious firepower on the Taliban, sending a very clear message. By early 2020, when America's exit negotiations were underway, until present day, there was not a single troop casualty in Afghanistan, even as we drew down to a force of 2,500. The reason for that was because President Trump had communicated so clearly to the Taliban that if they crossed any of his red lines, that he would decapitate their organization and its leaders. And he had a credible deterrence framework because the Taliban had seen what he had done, not just to al-Baghdadi, of ISIS, and not just to ISIS overall, but very importantly to Soleimani in Iran. Because what it demonstrated was that nobody is off limits, that anybody in your organization can be killed at any time, in any way, in any location. And the peace deal had a series that Pompeo had worked on, had a series of benchmarks the Taliban had to meet in terms of its relationship with the host government, in terms of its behavior and contact towards U.S. troops and our allies in the country, in terms of its participation in the political process. And if they didn't meet any of those, then the pull-down of troops would be frozen and punishments would be delivered. It was a very specific, the president used this phrase, conditions-based withdrawal. Because again, the president, although he disagreed strongly with the 20 years that had been spent nation-building, he understood that how we left mattered immensely, notwithstanding all the mistakes that had been made before, mattered immensely for the security and the prestige of the United States and the safety of its citizens. So if he had still been in office today, there would never have been a scenario where the embassy would have been abandoned in the first place because the Taliban would have understood that if they even attempted to get within a stone's throw of the embassy, they would have all been killed. So it wouldn't have even been a question. Likewise with our airbase. Likewise with anyone we wanted to evacuate from the country. The president has talked about the fact that if you were to do a emergency evacuation, that even a child's intelligence would tell you that you would take out your assets, your equipment, and your personnel before your troops. But that emergency scenario, I submit, would have never even come to pass in the first place because the Taliban would have understood that if they crossed any of the red lines we set out for them, they would have been met with deadly firepower very quickly. It's interesting to me that In a sense, Trump understood what Reagan and Nixon understood, which is that having your opponent believe that you are prepared to go to what to a normal person would seem like an irrational length, but in the real world is utterly, totally rational because you are trying to signal your opponent a willingness to cause them enough pain that they have to back off. And when you're dealing with a group like the Taliban, almost nobody in the West understands this is a genuinely 7th century group. They don't regard dying the same way we do. They have no concept of citizenship. They have no concept of any of the things the State Department has tried to do for 20 years because they represent an alternative civilization. They don't represent a subset of our civilization. And I think that President Trump consistently, if you look at how he dealt with North Korea, you look at how he dealt with China, you look at how he dealt with Russia, he was gradually creating zones of timidity 
in which our enemies were very careful about not getting us to pay too much attention to them because they thought we would, in fact, be the most powerful country in the world. And by contrast, what has amazed me, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point has a special unit that has gathered up information on terrorism in the Muslim world and had a lot of material on ISIS, for example. Well, one of the things they found when they got Osama bin Laden's laptop when they killed him, they found a 2010 letter in which bin Laden says it's very important that we can target Obama, but we not target Biden, because Biden is so totally incompetent that if we can get him to be president, he will just put America in total trouble. I'm paraphrasing, but that's close to it. When you read it, I mean, you, you think to yourself, coming after Bob Gates saying that he knows of no major national security issue in 40 years in which Biden was on the right side. The question I've been asking is, why are we surprised? Even bin Laden could figure out, this guy's not competent. And yet, I think we all saw him as being clever hiding in the basement. It turns out that as president, you have to come out of the basement and then we discover why you were hiding. Yes, very well put. And I think that what underscores all of this is that for a great power to make peace, its enemies have to perceive its willingness to use all of its strength and might. The problem that Biden faces, which is orders of magnitude even worse than Jimmy Carter, is the universal perception by all of our nation's enemies and adversaries that Biden is unwilling to use American strength. And so, again, you end up in that very ancient problem where weakness invites the aggression and boldness of your enemies. The whole Trump doctrine was predicated on the idea that in order to make the world more peaceful, we had to convince our enemies that the president was willing to use whatever power was necessary to defend those interests. And that deterrent now is totally evaporated. How much does that fact lead you to worry, for example, about Taiwan? I think that the whole stability of the world, including Taiwan, is now jeopardized. I mean, it's clear beyond a shadow of a doubt that China was not going to move on Taiwan as long as President Trump was in the White House. We knew it, China knew it, Taiwan knew it, the world knew it. I think that's very much on the table today. And I think, frankly, there are a lot of other places in the world where you're going to see increasingly belligerent behavior. I mean, we saw, for example, the spate of cyber attacks against the United States early in the Biden administration. We saw the highly provocative and deadly rocket attacks on Israel. And so I think that's just the beginning. When America is strong and projects strength outwardly, the world is more peaceful. That doesn't mean when America goes around the world waging war, the world is more peaceful. When America projects strength and its willingness to use it, the world is more peaceful. And then we've seen now the comparison in real time between the Trump years versus the Obama years before it with the Middle East in chaos before Trump came into office and now the Middle East spiraling back into chaos with Trump out of office. I mean, just think about the comparison to the Middle East and the Obama years with Libya, Syria, 
the complete destabilization of Iraq, the rise of ISIS, Trump, peace, stability, order, without starting a single new war in four years. And now Biden and everything's unraveling again. If that's not a better real-world demonstration of the difference between leading with strength and leading with weakness, I don't know what is. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. One of the things I've been sort of thinking about is We're coming up on September 11th, which I think Biden thought was going to be this great success moment. The troops would all be gone, everything would be wonderful, and he would be the guy who'd ended the war. Instead, I suspect we may well have Americans hiding in various places in Afghanistan. I mean, people focus on Kabul, but the fact is there are Americans all over that country, and it's a big country, and it's a country of mountains and valleys where people are often very isolated. And I sort of wonder what September 11th this year is going to be like. It's the 20th anniversary. And in a sense, and I know this will jar a lot of Americans, but historians will study the bin Laden campaign, which tested us by bombing two embassies and a U.S. naval ship, and then figured out an absolutely extraordinary strategy of using commercial aircraft to fly into buildings which is something that Tom Clancy had written about. It wasn't unthinkable. But that event on September 11th launched a 20-year war in which I think you could argue 
that the terrorists won in every way. I mean, the loss of American lives, the loss of American money, the degree to which our focus was taken away from our major opponents, China and Russia, the fact that in the end we were defeated by, as I said earlier, 21st century most powerful nation that is defeated by a 7th century tribe. I think it is worthy of the American people demanding a really deep, thorough review of what went wrong, what do we need to learn, and how do we need to profoundly change our entire national security apparatus. But I'm curious your thoughts on it, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, well, I could talk about this for hours. I mean, because I saw it up close and personal about the strategic failures and short-sightedness of the foreign policy establishment and the Pentagon in particular. And I know Pompeo could speak at length about the State Department, but let's just focus on the Pentagon for a moment. In every interaction I had with the Pentagon, and I would always press on this point, they never seemed to be even remotely intellectually curious about why the Taliban had been so resilient in 20 years of war. I would always ask the question, what's the reason why the Taliban has managed to survive this long, to hold out so long, to perform so well? And they never had an answer for the question. They didn't even seem interested in the question. I mean, just the fact that I was asking it to them struck them as an impertinent distraction. It was just a complete lack of intellectual curiosity. Likewise, I would say, oftentimes, are you at all concerned about the fact that so many of the people that we're working with in Kabul, you know, this is like in 2017, 2018, 2019, in the heart of the war effort, are you concerned that some of the people that we're working with in Kabul do not want to stay or live or remain in Afghanistan? Is that a bad sign to you? Do you see any troubling indications there that the people that are partnering with in the war effort are really eager to leave Afghanistan as soon as humanly possible? Like that would seem to me to be a troubling sign. Like they don't have a lot of faith this thing is going to work out and they're the ones that have been living there their whole lives. And again, they never understood the question. They thought it was a strange thing to even ask. They would always say, no, 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 no. This is how it works. You work with our government and then you leave. And they never understood that that seemed to be a really bad omen for the war effort. There's an intellectual rot in the Department of Defense in the upper echelons. And I want to be very clear here. There are some amazing, extraordinary people in the Pentagon. And many of our generals have served valiantly in many conflict zones. But from a strategic standpoint, we have fallen a long way from the brilliant occupation of Japan. There is no desire on the part of the elite military leadership to critically examine the mistakes that were made in the early days of Afghanistan in trying to impose our vision of government on a country that had no experience with that kind of government. One of the extraordinarily simplistic assumptions that was made was that if you opposed the Taliban, then ipso facto you supported an American-style government, like it was a binary thing. And so to this day, we still continue to believe that. It would be like saying in Iraq that if you opposed Saddam's Sunni government, that meant you were an American Democrat. No, it can mean a million different things, including that you were a Shia ultranationalist. There is just zero desire 
to understand the early failures that have been made and to do a course correction. And I would just close on this point by saying that I think the biggest lesson here is that you can't hand somebody a copy of the American Constitution, put a bunch of troops in their capital city, and then expect that this is going to take. You need to create a transition into a government that is consistent with the country's history, its geography, its culture, and its people's desires. And that was a spectacular failure on the part of the Pentagon. And to this day, they only can measure our failure in terms of how many bodies we put on the ground and how many bodies we put in harm's way. And that's just a completely simplistic way of looking at it. John Noggle, when he was an Army major, wrote a book called Eating Soup with a Knife, which is a T.E. Lawrence phrase for how hard guerrilla warfare is. And Noggle's book is the most devastating intellectual take on Vietnam and comparing what General Thompson had done in Malaya with the British, where they defeated the communists in a guerrilla war, with what the Americans did in Vietnam. I actually read the book because General Petraeus thought that it was extraordinarily helpful. But I called Noggle and I said, how did your career survive this book? And he said, well, nobody in the Army reads. So the book was a non-event. I almost think September 11th ought to be a teach-in. And we ought to have every military professional school across the system at least stop and say, we lost a 20-year war. What is it we should be thinking about? Now, when we came out of Vietnam, we had a group of extraordinarily courageous officers who literally rebuilt the American military under Reagan and learned the lessons, applied it to intense combat, and it was the force which won so decisively twice in Iraq and would probably have defeated the Soviets pretty decisively. But these were guys who started from, you know, we got our tail beat, and we need to rethink all this. And I don't sense that tone. I mean, they're more concerned right now about being woke than about being victorious. And that is an enormous threat to the survival of America. That's precisely right. And that's one of the huge blind spots in that you talk about trying to export Western values and Western democracy to Afghanistan. That included, incredibly, on the part of the State Department, non-governmental organizations and others, some of these very progressive ideologies, including maybe some more mainstream American thought, but which wasn't very popular in Afghanistan. And, you know, one of the things in that part of the world that we have to understand, to be blunt, is that people respect strength. And if you look at the Middle East and Southeast Asia, I mean, that's very clear, is that people respect strength, including our enemies, including the Taliban. And when you remove that component and you're left with the State Department's pathetic allusions to international norms, you become a joke. You become a laughingstock. And that's unfortunately what's happened under Biden. And the last thing I'll say on this point is that it is indeed an unimaginable tragedy that we are where we are 20 years after the murderous terrorist attacks of 9-11. And I think that we have to be clear also in saying that we have to look at the failures both of the American left 
that we are seeing today in spectacular form, as well as the failures that took place in the Bush administration, where we went down this democracy-building road in the first place that took our eye off the core mission. And that also has to be part of the reevaluation. Yeah, I think that's right. I remember in 2002 being involved in arguments trying to explain that the Taliban was a non-negotiable group, that they didn't want to be citizens, they didn't want to be part of a modern democracy, that in fact it violated their religious beliefs at the most fundamental level, and that we were totally misguided in how we were trying to deal with radical Islam. And we lost that because the Republican and Democratic establishments flinched at the idea that these people, in fact, are antithetical to our way of life, and they had to keep somehow projecting that, oh, they must be misunderstood. If only we could find a way to communicate. And it's one of the reasons I went back and found Churchill's article and his speech in the Parliament on Hitler taking the Rhineland and militarizing it in 1935, which is the first overt act of moving towards World War II. And you realize that Churchill, who's the only British politician who'd actually read Mein Kampf, is telling all of them, if you don't act now, it's going to get worse. And it's going to ultimately lead to a big war. We need that kind of understanding. These guys aren't going to go home. They're not going to, you know, roast a goat and have a party on September 11th. They're going to be plotting. How do we extend our values across the planet? How do we take $80 billion of American equipment and get it to Nigeria and Somalia and Indonesia and you name it? How do we figure out ways to hurt America again? Because we've now been convinced they can be beaten, so let's go beat them. I think this is a very dangerous time and requires us to profoundly rethink. I know you have been very generous with your time today. You have remarkable insights across a broad range of things. I do want to remind people that Stephen is deeply involved with America First Legal and that we'll have on our show page a way to reach the website at aflegal.org. Stephen, I just want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to share these insights with us. Well, I want to thank you for having me on again and for your insights. And I would just close by saying that we are truly witnessing in real time an unfathomable historic catastrophe. And it is both at once sad and depressing and terrifying, but I would say that we need to apply our energies constructively and realize that even in this extraordinary disaster that we're in, we have to be thinking about how to regain sane congressional majorities and regain sane, constructive leadership in this country so that it doesn't truly become midnight for America. And on that note, I think we're both optimists and we think, in fact, as Ronald Reagan once campaigned, that it can be morning in America again, but we have got to get through the next couple of years of a very, very hard slog. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you to my guest, Stephen Miller. You can learn more about America First Legal on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. 
Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. If you haven't heard, it's a good idea to fit probiotics into your daily routine. Fortunately, Nature's Way women's probiotic pearls make that so easy. These adorable little pearls couldn't be easier to take, and they support both digestive and vaginal health, all because of the probiotics. There are actually one billion active cultures protecting against occasional bloating, constipation, and digestive discomfort, all in one tiny little pearl. To learn more about Nature's Way women's probiotic pearls and how they can fit into your routine, visit naturesway.com.